This is this is being videotaped, yes? Because I'm gonna because I'm gonna play this to a lot of people. Can you put three minutes back on the clock, please? Because I. So first of all, uh, thank you. Thank you for your warm welcome and hospitality. Thank you, Rich, for the invitation as we've, as I've, we've been talking about this. Um, I, I just want to say it's uh, extraordinarily humbling to be invited to come into this space and be with this body of believers. Uh, I uh, bring you greetings from our nation's capital, from Washington, D.C., um, and from Northern Virginia, where Phyllis and I live. Um, and uh, it's my first time to Queens, ever, right? My first time, right? And I'm, and I'm like, and I'm, 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 I'm it's the first time I've driven around in Manhattan, and the Queen, we, we drove up, you're like, it's so, it, it, I, it's just been a fabulous weekend. And uh, so I, I'm just really grateful to be here. And uh, I, I, will, I will say at the outset that part of why I'm always grateful to be in spaces with the people of God uh, is because uh, following the king is hard to do. We live in a world that would like us to believe that living in the world should not be difficult at all. And it's a bold-faced lie. In this world, we will have tribulation. I didn't make up that line. The king did. And he said before that, but I tell you these things so that in me you will have peace. Not in your Materialism, not in your iPhone, not in your IRA, in me, you will have peace. And so I'm also grateful here because, to, to be here because we know that if we are together doing the hard work, we are reminded of what neuroscientists would tell us about the brain, which is that the brain can do a lot of hard work for a really long time as long as it doesn't have to do it by itself. But we also live in a world that has trained us and continues to train us to believe that we should be able to live by ourselves and be okay. But we read in the second page of the Bible that it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. But we live in a world that trains us to live as if we should be able to do that. And so I'm grateful to be here in a space where you're not just being formed by a worship service. This is not a place where you just come and check your box and say, I did that Sunday thing that I do. This is a place where you're coming and you're being formed. This is a forming time together. Whether we know it or not, we are being formed into being people who are more human or less human every single breath we take, every single one. And so when you come into a space like this, you're coming into a space that is forming us into the image of Jesus, which is very different than how you're going to be formed when you leave this building. Are you with me? And so it is necessary for us to be reminded through music and worship 
and the Word, the text, that we are in the presence of the Holy Trinity whose task it is to form us into our individual versions of Jesus. But I want to say that um, evil is not about to go quietly into the night, and it will do everything it can to interrupt and interfere your formational process even now, in this room right now. There will be people, there are people in the room who are worried about things that you brought into the room that you're thinking about that, you're not listening to me. It, like, because this is what happens. I'd ask you to raise your hand, but that would be too shaming. <laughs> but this is our topic. And speaking of what evil wants to do, I want to remind us that there is no more lethal weapon that shame that, that evil wields than shame to undo you, to devour you. It doesn't want to use shame just to make you feel bad. It wants you devoured. And it will do everything it can to convince you that that's not what it's trying to do while it's doing that very thing. One of the reasons why it is important to talk about shame in a series on the body, on our bodies, is because we often think that when we think about shame, we think about it as a thing that we feel, which is true, but one of the things that we're going to learn, and we're going to talk a lot about this in even more detail this afternoon, that shame is primarily a function of your body. That's where it begins. We don't even pay attention to that, which is why we aren't aware most of the time that it's even in play. But for us to better understand it, we're going to talk about two different stories from the texts today. A story from Genesis, a story from the Gospel of John, and then we're also going to listen to a short passage from the writer to the letter of Hebrews. So let's begin with the first story. The first story is in Genesis chapter 3. Now you're all familiar with this. Have you heard of, the, have you heard of Adam and Eve? You've heard of the, this, this couple, right? And you might know this, or you're very familiar with the story of what happened in the Garden of Eden, Right? And the Garden of Eden, now what's important about this story is not just what happens here, but it's what happens in the two pages that precedes it. Because this story that talks about the first couple and their interaction with the snake begins just one sentence earlier. Because at the end of the second chapter of Genesis, we read this. And the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. It's the first thing you read. Now what's important about this? Why are the Hebrews going out of their way to tell us this? They're letting us know. They're letting us know that they want us to draw our attention to something that's coming. The first thing, though, that they say is that if you're going to be a human being, if you're going to be who God made us to be on the first page of the Bible, and who did he make us to be on the first page of the Bible? When we read on the first page of the Bible what God was doing in the world, he was making stuff. You know that. The first page of the Bible does not talk about God and all of his attributes. You open the Bible, and there he is. He's at work. He's doing stuff. He's making things. He's creating beauty and goodness at every turn. The Bible is not explaining God. It's giving you a movie of what he's doing. And he gets to the end of the first page, and what does he say? Let's make human beings, and let's make them do what we do on the earth. Are you with me? So what we are made to be before we were made anything else is to reflect the image of God as artists in whatever we are doing. Whether it's in your marriage, your friendships, your work, your play. The question is, what is the next icon of beauty that God is calling us to create? 
That's the question. That's what it means for us to bear and restore the image of God. This is what it means for us to be in God's image. Are you with me? That means if we're going to create, if this is the thing that we're supposed to do, you think like, dude, like changing diapers? Anybody here changing diapers these days? You're like, how is that an act of creativity? Like the baby created stuff. I don't need any more creation with this stuff, right? I got all kinds of ways in which I got to live a lot of life and creativity is not the word that's coming to mind. And I want to invite you to consider that that has everything to do with what evil has already done with shame. And we're going to get there in just a moment. So God has us poised to be people who are creating things in the world. Right there. It's coming. Right there. Right? That is the voice of creativity that's growing up in the world. I'm not kidding. Are you with me? And at the end of chapter 2, we read that the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. Now, what does it mean, then, for us to create? This is all getting us ready for chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, what it means for us is that, first of all, for us to create, we need to be differentiated. The man and his wife. Women and men, as it turns out, your brains, wait for it, are far more alike than they are different. And I know half of you are saying, that's not true. And the other half are saying, that's not true. <laughs> We're actually far more alike in its content and its activity than we are different. But where we are different, we are immeasurably different. We are called to create. Notice, man and his wife is not just about male and female. It is definitely about that. It is about marriage. It is about all those things. And it is also about something much bigger. It is to say that the created order is intended for us to make things with people who are different than us. It's this congregation, right? The most diverse zip code in America, right? right? It, it, it's what it means to come here. But it's not just that. How many of you are in small groups? You can raise your hand high. It's okay. There's no, there's no shame in this. You can do that, right? All right, so you're in small groups. How many of you are in small groups in which you are with someone that you don't like? <laughs> oh, you're not raising your hand, but you're laughing. Like, you know, I've got one honest person in the, in the, in the house. I want to make something, I want to make beauty with people who are just like me. Amen? I want to be, make, make beauty with people I get along with. I want to make beauty with people who think like I think. All the things, Right? My wife, who is here, thanks be to God that she's still with me after 36 and a half years, right? So, so she's heard me say this. She's heard me say this. When I got married, I thought I wanted to marry Phyllis. And then as it turned out, I discovered I didn't. I wanted to marry me. I just wanted me to look like her. I wanted someone who thought like I thought, who thought the things that I thought was funny, who could go to the movies at the right time. <laughs> you follow me? Like, even in these intimate relationships where we think we know that we love a person, like, we, we actually, like, I'm, I, like, being in love is really about being in love with the feeling that I feel when I'm with you. I'm in love with me. <laughs> That's all right. This is who they invite to preach. Like, <laughs> look, I tell them, I'm not just a sinner. Like, I'm a professional sinner. 
I figure if you're good enough to do something for a long time and you're really good at it, you should just call yourself a pro, right? <laughs> so they're naked in addition to being male and female. And what does it mean to be naked? It's not just to be without clothing, right? The Hebrews had lots of intentional usage for these different words, and for their use of the word naked, they're really talking about vulnerability. Human beings are the most vulnerable creatures in the world when we are not clothed. Like, dogs don't wonder whether they can be, like, they, they just go out and they just go and do their thing, right? Right? We don't, well, now, some people put clothes on dogs. <laughs> like, dude, like, that's weird. <laughs> like, that, I mean, we can, and we, we can, and if you, and if, and if you're, okay, if you're somebody who puts clothes on your dog, I'm sure I have an online appointment tomorrow available for you. <laughs> okay, but, but, but see, here's the thing. Like, God made us in such a way that to be vulnerable means I actually need the person who is different than me to protect me. I need the person who is different than me to assist me, and I them. This is how we are made to create beauty and goodness in the world. And they stand on the precipice they are differentiated, they are vulnerable, and shame is not yet in the conversation. They are unashamed. And then what happens? In the first story that we read, the serpent was the craftiest of all the creatures that the Lord God had made. To be crafty intends that he was shrewd. But he wasn't just shrewd for the purpose of creating beauty and goodness. He was shrewd for the purpose of devouring. And we're going to see pretty quickly in the course, we're just going to, if you read through this, this conversation, you're going to see that the nature of how the snake has the conversation with the woman. He's not just asking her about facts. He is doing things in the course of the conversation to wound her. Did God really say that? How many of us regularly have questions? Does my dad really love me? Am I really good enough? Does my wife, does my husband, do my kids? Am I going to be good enough for my work? All the things. Like, we just have endless numbers of questions that we're sitting with even right now, that we've been sitting with for as long as we've been alive because we grew up in homes where people had the same thing. Like, like the kid who comes to his dad with a 92% on his math test at age 10 because it's the first time he's done this well and the dad asks, where's the other 8%? Right? I mean, that's not child abuse, but it is a small way in which we wound others. And this is what shame primarily is. When the serpent has the conversation with the woman, he is committing an act of violence. Now, we often don't think about shame as violence, but I will tell you that what happened in Texas yesterday began with shame. Because all acts of violence emerge from this emotional state. But I also want us to recognize that this emotional state doesn't begin in your head. Imagine, when you feel shame, like, how do you know that you feel it? You feel it in your body. There are all kinds of ways, right? And this is what we are told in the first two chapters of Genesis, why we're drawn to this, why, why it's so important for us to be talking about the body. 
Because when God made the man in Genesis 2-7, he first formed him from mud. There's a sequence. Mud and breath, right? We are breath bodies. Amen? He formed the man from the mud of the earth and breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and man became a living being. But there was a sequence. The body is not more important, but there is a sequence. Everything that we do, sense, image, begins with my body. And so we know that evil is going to go after my body as a way to use shame to devour me. How does it happen? He starts to have a conversation with Eve in the isolation of her own embodied self. Like, why doesn't evil say, hey, I know God comes around around 5 o'clock. I'm going to wait, and when he does, we're going to have a conversation. The four of us are going to talk. He doesn't do this. He isolates us. Because this is also how shame operates in the brain. Are you with me? And we can know that like shame also begins, it begins early in the game. Why do you think the Hebrews decided to set up their readers to start to pay attention to this feature so early in the text? It is because even in our own neurodevelopment, shame starts to take root as early as 15 to 18 months of age. Long before we have language, long before we have a cognitive capacity to understand what's happening to me, I'm already having to practice learning what to do with my body to cope with what my body is feeling. And what my body feels is this sense of disintegration, the sense of turning away from you and turning away from myself. And this is exactly what happens to Eve. Are you with me? How many of us here have had moments in which we sense the disintegrating force of shame happening by turning us away from those that we love, away from even our own internal capacity to think clearly, to act clearly, and therefore away from the acts of beauty and goodness that God is waiting for us to create with him. Because if I'm burning all this energy trying to manage all this shame that I have, that energy will not be available to me to love my neighbor as I love myself. It will not be available for me to create beauty and goodness in the world, especially when I'm being asked to do it in hard places. Because I'm going to have too much energy bound up just doing that. And look, evil's just getting started with her. Evil is just saying, did God really say? Because what he's really trying to do is to convince her, is to remind her that in turn, as it turns out, God doesn't love you nearly as much as you think he does. He talks an awful lot about God in this conversation while letting her draw conclusions about herself. Because at the end of the day, it's not just that the serpent is trying to tell her things about God. The serpent wants her to know you're not enough. You're not the image bearer of God. Isn't that interesting? Isn't this just exactly what he does several centuries later when he's talking to Jesus in Luke 4, in Matthew 4? If you are God's son, which really is the statement, you're not really that loved. The message that comes to us over and over and over again, and then you know how this works. These things happen to us when we're young. These things happen to us in our families. These things happen to us in our workplaces. These things happen to us all the time. But the things that happen to us can't even compare to the number of times that we do things to ourselves. Because then I will be left, she will be left, with a perpetual question. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? 
Am I loved enough? We can hear the gospel preached Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and if in my body I'm still walking around with a payload of shame, the gospel spoken on a Sunday is going to have a hard time competing. This is why it's so important for us to be exposed, vulnerable, to the body of Jesus, who become Jesus' sightline, they become his tone of voice, they become his nonverbal cues. They're not just message bearers of some abstract set of ideas. They are real bone and blood bodies who are coming to tell us we're not leaving you alone in the same way that the serpent wants to isolate you and devour you. Are you with me? Amen. This is who we are. This is what we do. And then you see you get to the second part of the story and they discovered that and their eyes were opened, right? They have this conversation. And she decides, I, I'm like, you know, it's, 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 this, this may not be untrue that uh, a lot of theology has been spoken about, like, she's taking fruit because of her pride and because of she's going to be God. And that's true, but I want to suggest to you that she's doing it as a coping strategy to take care of her wound. Who of us have collected shame and its appropriated condemnation as a way for us to cope with our wounds you know the first wound as it turned out where was the first wound in the bible one page earlier wait really yes you remember adam god gave him general anesthesia you remember that story you remember the story adam he's just like mining he's just gardening minding his own business naming a horse there naming a pig there minding his own business next thing you know goosh, right he's asleep there was no signed consent forms, <laughs> no review of potential side effects. And he wakes up with a chest wound. Does this sound like a good idea? He wakes up with a chest wound, but what's the difference? Because when he comes to, what does he see? He sees the woman that God is bringing to him, and how does he respond? He responds with poetry and song. Because God's intention in that wound was beauty and goodness. The intention of the serpent in his wounding of the woman was devouring. Are you with me? Every single day, you, I, we will make dozens of choices in hundreds of moments that are between goodness and beauty and devouring. We are going to pay attention to the serpent and our shame, or we're going to pay attention to God, who even in our wounding, is bringing things to life that we couldn't imagine otherwise. But I can't do this by myself because one of the features of shame is that it is most effective when I'm caught isolated in my own brain's privacy. How many of us, like, we have things, how many, okay. Has anybody here had something for which you felt ashamed in the last week? Raise your hand. Man, you're all just like not telling me the truth because I, I I know everybody here. Okay, okay, all right, we'll give. Okay, what about within? What about what about like within the last two days? Okay, you know the psychiatrist is asking questions. This is getting anxiety provoking. Okay, what about within the last two hours? Right. Who here would you, would you like to come up and share what that was? Right, you, you see the point. Like, this whole, we feel ashamed, and then we feel ashamed for feeling ashamed. I just want to continue to go off the stage. Are you with me? 
And so this is what evil will do. Once evil starts this in motion, he, like, he doesn't even have another line. After the conversation is done, he doesn't have another line in the text. He is fine to wound us and let us then do to each other what he doesn't then have to do. And so they saw that they were naked. Their eyes were opened. Notice, they didn't open their eyes. Their eyes were opened. It's a passive tense. And look, there's only two cats in the story. Like, who's opening whose eyes? You see what we do then, right? I need to open your eyes about some things. Right? Those are the people that are in your small group that you don't like. (laughs) Whose eyes you would like to open. And it goes from there to covering themselves, to hiding from God in the woods when God comes calling. In fact, their shame has also shattered their imagination of what God's purpose in coming from them, coming for them is even about. He's not coming to kill them. He's coming to ask them where they are so that they can be healed. Imagine, what if God had shown up and he finds Adam and Adam comes out of the woods, strips off all of his clothes, And he says, look, I know you've come here probably to kill me. At least that's what I'm telling myself. And you probably have to talk to Eve. But I just want to let you know, like, I really screwed this up. I didn't do my job. I was asleep at the wheel. Like, I don't don't know how the snake got in the garden, but I didn't do my job of, like, pushing him out. I I, I let him have the conversation with Eve. Like, I didn't do my job. Do with me what you will. Can you imagine? Is there any woman here who could imagine a man taking that responsibility for his behavior? <laughs> Eve, Eve would. This is true. Eve would want to have sex with him as long as he wanted to after this. Like this is like, right, like, like, like this would be such a heroic thing like she can't believe this you you follow me this is this is the thing right and god the holy trinity would stand it's like can you believe this guy right this is a guy who's taking responsibility for his stuff and this is not who we are no because one page later we become the parents of one son who kills another the way we respond to our shame only continues to increase and extend violence. And it's so bad that when we again get to John chapter 9, racing ahead several centuries, we find Jesus speaking to his disciples about a man born blind upon whom they have come. As they walked along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples, you would think, given who they were with, And given who the man was, you would think that they would be excited about the opportunity for a healing. Amen? That would be fair? You'd think, Jesus, oh my gosh, heal this guy. It's going to be on the IG. It's just going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Right? Like we're going to increase by like like 5,000 followers. It's going to be so awesome. But what do they do? What do they do? What's their question? Who sinned? They're not looking to create. They're looking to condemn. Who sinned? His 
or his parents? Is this his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, boys, these are the wrong questions. I'm going to create as long as there's light to do so. I'm going to do the things that I've led to do by my father. That's why I'm in the business of creation. And what does he do? He reenacts Genesis chapter 2. Notice this blind guy. He doesn't even have a name. Like Bartimaeus. Have you ever heard of Bartimaeus? Yeah, you've heard of him because he has a name. This guy doesn't even get a name. He's just the blind guy. And what happens? Jesus spits in the dirt. He doesn't ask for a pail of water. He spits. Now, if I'm a blind guy, I'm just minding my own business being blind. <laughs> I hear this conversation. I guess they're talking about me. And next thing, I hear somebody, like, hawk one up onto the ground. <laughs> that's what I hear. And you're like, oh, that's odd. I wonder what that's all about. <laughs> he must have had something caught in his throat. And then I just hear this, like, and then it's like, whack, whack. What is Jesus doing? He's reenacting Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God took mud, and he formed the man, and he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils. This was not creation from a distance. Jesus was giving this man something that belonged to his very body to create new life in the space where you would least expect it to come from. Here's a question. What parts of our lives are blind? So much so that because we've only ever been blind, we don't perhaps even know that that's the case. But perhaps there are places where we have wounding and shame and we're doing our best not to name it, just like he had no name. We're doing our best to make sure nobody really notices me. I'll just play my role. Are you with me? We each in this room have places that Jesus is coming to find that we don't even know because we're too blind to know that we're blind. Like, I don't even know that but he's not willing to let that go by. And then you see what happens when Jesus does this, and then he says, go wash at the pool of Siloam. And of course, he's like, where's the pool? <laughs> now maybe he knows, because he's been there for a while, he knows where the pool is, he goes, and he washes and he can see. And then what happens in the story? We don't have this in the text, but if you go home and read this text, you will see that the community, his neighbors, they lose their minds. The first thing they say is, hey, who are you? Are, are you? are you that guy that was blind and you're thinking like, huh, I've been here for a long time and you can't tell who I was? And now that I can see, like you're confused? You're with me. What we see is that when this man is healed, all hell breaks loose. What Jesus called for was a healing and what the community called for was a trial. And it is important to know that healing, in addition to being a beautiful and good thing, is also a disruptive technology. 
I can't tell you how many people I take care of who in the context of their own families, when they decide that healing is what they're going to pursue, their families try to keep it from happening. How many here have relationships with siblings, parents, who in the course of following Jesus, in the course of living as icons of beauty and goodness in the world, are actually pushing against the family system you've grown up in? And what will they do? They're going to try to squeeze you back into its mold. And this is what happens to this guy. Everybody. Like his family throws him under the bus. Right? Every, everybody. Right? And when it's all said and done, and he's on his own, and it's important to know, healing of this kind is costly. I want to be relieved of my shame, and it's going to be great. What about Jesus in John 8, when the woman who was caught in adultery comes to him? And he heals her social situation and then says, go and sin no more. How is she supposed to feed her kids? This has been her job. You follow me? Jesus heals our shame and then places great demands on us in order for us to become icons of beauty and goodness. We are not just creating beauty. That is what we are becoming. But it can be costly. How do we respond in two minutes and 30 seconds? <laughs> That's what that clock says back there. <laughs> like this. When we turn to Hebrews, and because there's only two verses, you can read it in less than two minutes, so it's going to be great. When you turn to Hebrews, you find that since there is therefore now such a great cloud of witnesses that surround you, we want you to throw off every sin that so entangles and distracts you. Throw it all off. Focusing your attention, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's what we want you to do. We're going to run this race with perseverance. Practice, 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 practice. We're going to run this race with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus. There's a famous painting of Jesus and Peter that portrays Luke's rendition of Jesus looking at Peter straight in the eye, immediately following Peter's third denial of him. And when you look at the painting, you see this look because the character of Jesus is really in the distance. It's hard to make out how he actually looks in this painting. But when you look at it, you can start to imagine, well, if, if I'm Peter and that's Jesus, I have the image in my head of how Jesus is going to be looking at me. I'm guessing he's not going to be doing like... No, he won't be doing that. I'm guessing that there's going to be some look of sadness, of disappointment, of I told you so. How many of us have plenty of moments in which we imagine that that's the look that we're getting from God every day. There's some part of me, maybe not all of me, but there's some parts of me that still carry my shame. And when I imagine gazing at Jesus, gazing at me, I just see a look of disappointment. In the same way I see the look of disappointment from my friends, from my boss, from my employees, from my spouse, from my whatever. You with me? And I want to invite you to imagine this. What if the gaze that Jesus is giving Peter is one of, I see you. I know what we talked about. 
we're totally good. I'm going to see you in three days. Get ready. That's the look. What if the look is that Jesus is fearless about your shame? He is fearless about what you've done because he's coming for you over and over and over and over. And he gets to John 21 with Peter on the beach after the resurrection, and he's asking, do you love me? And of course, like, what am I supposed to say? Like, oh, you mean like I did six weeks ago when I threw you under the bus? Jesus is incessant in coming for us in this way. And so the writer of the Hebrews says we're going to fix our eyes on the gaze of that man. But that is the gaze that we can only see by being in our small groups with the people that we don't like. Are you with me? This is the gospel. That the people that don't like me and that I don't like, we do so because of our shame. And evil would love for me to tell the story that, well, I just don't like you for X, Y, and Z, when really there's so much more to your story and my story that we haven't told each other, where the shame is holding up, and evil doesn't want anybody to know that. In the same way, he didn't want Adam and Eve talking about what was really going on. But when Jesus comes along, he's turning over every single stone. He's going to every blind spot, and he's bringing himself. New creation. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and finish of our faith, we remember that he is coming for us because of the joy that he shares. Like, he, he, like, he's just so, like, he just so digs you. What's your name? Raul. Like, dude, like, he so digs you. Is that your wife? Yeah. Yeah. Did she tell you that yet today? Okay. I'll just, just in case she hasn't, I'm just letting you know. He so digs you. And, like, this is just true. And our shame makes it really difficult for us to be receptive to that. The hardest thing we have as human beings, the hardest job we have, because the thing that we are the least capable of doing is allowing others to love us. Like, we're not very good at loving other people. Like, we, we know that. But the reason that we're not is because we have yet to be receptive to being loved in the parts of us that are shamed. And these are the things that Jesus is coming for. And he comes for us in this way because of the joy of being with us. Like what's happening in this room today. You're coming here because like you are the body of Jesus. Letting everybody else around you know that like Jesus could not be more delighted than to be your older brother. He is so thrilled to be your king and wants you to let other, everybody else know like this is the way the real world works. My hope is that as we imagine the end of this text in Hebrews, this notion that Jesus is disregarding shame. Thank you for your service. We don't need that anymore. I'm going to take your place. I'm coming for everybody. We don't need this anymore. I can endure the cross because of this because I want everybody with me sitting at the right hand of our Father. And that is what we are coming today to be reminded of and formed into. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's pray together. Holy Trinity, we ask that you grant us the capacity to imagine your taking all that has been done here in this time together, our worship, our speaking, our listening, 
and turn us more into your son with it. And may we leave everything else at the cross, the cross of our King, Jesus, raised from the dead, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. I can't think of a better way to respond to a sermon like that than to receive communion together. So if you, let's, in, let's all stand together. If you need the elements, raise your hand. One of our ushers will, will hand you one. When we receive communion, Jesus is reminding us that he longs to be in our company. He invites us to the table. He invites us to feast. He invites us to see one another. That's the gift of communion. Communion is God saying to you, I long for your company. Before we receive communion, I want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment to offer our own repentance. Where have you turned from God? Where have you been hiding from God? Where have you been isolating, distancing yourself, trying to solve your problem of shame in your own strength? I'll give you a moment to offer your own confession before God, and then we'll pray this prayer of confession on the screen together. pray this prayer of confession that we have on the screen together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own fault, in thought, in word, and deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life. To the glory of your name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As the people of God set free through the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all receive together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns as the people of God forgiven through the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. 
Let's all receive together. Lord, thank you for the gift of this table, the gift of your broken body and poured out blood, the gift that makes us whole and new, the gift that restores us to what you've called us to be. And so we sing to you now words of praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing in response together. Sing Waymaker. Waymaker. Miracle work, promise keep, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Waymaker, waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. 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 Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop give it up for Kurt Thompson again for blessing us. A wonderful, wonderful gift. As I mentioned a few things here before I bless you, 
Uh, Kurt's books are available downstairs. Um, I know the first service purchased a number of them, so hopefully there will be some remaining downstairs. He'll be down there as well to greet some of you for a few minutes before he prepares for the seminar that we're going to have. So please make your way down there. Uh, to register or just to check in, just go down to the lobby area at the end of the service. The doors will open a little after 1 o'clock, and then we're going to begin at 1.30 uh, right in this room here. So we're going to have um, two hours to explore a lot of what we've heard today. And if you're anything like me, uh, you're going to need to hear some important truths about what it means to actually live into this reality. I uh, want to make you aware we have these resources available to you, these journaling resources that our pastoral team, our community life team has made available, worked so hard to put this together. Um, this is what I know happens. I know when Monday comes, people start going, what did we learn about yesterday? I just forgot what we learned about. We, wanna, we anticipated that. And so if you go on our website, uh, elmhurst.newlife.nyc slash journaling, you can take advantage of some questions and some prompts to help you reflect further on what you've heard today. We have our prayer team here. Uh, I want to invite them to come forward. And here's why. I believe that transformation comes in a multitude of ways. Transformation comes in the slow, steady process of formation. But transformation can also come with an encounter with God that in a given moment, God could do for you what it will take years for you to do in your own strength. A shift in your thinking, a shift in the way you perceive yourselves. God can move. And so this is why we close every gathering with prayer because we want to help you take advantage of the presence of God to make the most of it for your own healing and well-being. And so our prayer team will be here for whatever needs you have. Maybe you came into this building. Maybe you're watching online. You've never said yes to Jesus Christ. You've been carrying shame for so long. Here's the good news. And I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Adam and Eve hide behind a tree, naked and covered in shame. You know the good news of the gospel is? Our Lord Jesus Christ hangs on a tree naked and conquer shame you want freedom from your shame it's through the lord jesus christ who can make that a reality of yours and so whether you want to say yes to jesus whether you want to get baptized taking your next step you can click on that link there or if you're watching online see one of our pastors we want to help you take your next step but as we close let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. We end every gathering with a blessing. Why? Because the world is filled with cursing. The world is filled with shaming. And so we end our gathering with blessing, reminding you that the eyes of the Lord look upon you with love, compassion, grace. And God calls you into a new way of being and a new way of seeing. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building and out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to the truth that Jesus Christ heals, redeems, saves. I bless you all and the strong in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you all. See you in a little bit.